Hey guys, welcome to episode 70 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we wanted to thank everyone for all of our reviews over the past two weeks. We always appreciate you reaching out, whether it's through reviews, a follow on social media, or a quick email. We love hearing from you guys. Yes, we do, guys. And thank you very much on Instagram, all our followers on Instagram as well. I was uh, I was really surprised that everybody actually went out and voted and let us know about it because we really want to try to get on that a magazine. So uh, we really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, that was really nice and, and overwhelming. We love all the support that our listeners show us all the time. So thanks, guys. So today for our 70th episode, we have an interesting case from Australia that occurred in 1970. Before we get into any details, I just wanted to tell the audience about the primary source used for the show. Of course, all other sources will be listed in the show notes, but this one needs some special attention. Greg Fogarty wrote a book in 2010 entitled Almost Perfect about this crime and his recollection of hearing about it when he was growing up, paired with loads of research. So this makes for a really interesting true crime read, and I'll list the details of the book in the show notes as well. And at the top of the show, before we get super involved into it, we just wanted to let our audience know that today's episode is going to include some violence against children. So we just wanted to give that um, little disclosure at the beginning of the episode before you get involved. Yeah, we don't want you to be blindsided and uh, we don't want your stomachs to turn or anything. So we just want to make sure that, you know, you're warned. (laughs) Yes, or a bad review. It's never good. No, never. (laughs) So on Thursday, July 2nd, 1970, a family heads out to Lock Ard Gorge in Port Campbell National Park. It was finally a nice day, in the middle of what had been a very bad winter. They wanted to see the large blowhole that had been created through years of water erosion against the famous limestone cliffs. They planned to go at high tide so they could best hear and see the famous site. When the water came up, it crashed against the waves and thunderously made its way up the tunnel of limestone to erupt into the air. It was a very large tourist attraction. I mean... I, could, I, I, I got you there. I got you there. But that would be pretty cool, actually. I though. made like three penis jokes there. <laughs> but I was like, oh, how am I going to like say the word blowhole, actually, without laughing? Well, that was actually pretty good because I, I didn't, it was, I didn't yeah. expect it from you. I would expect something like that from me. But yeah, good. I kept it pretty straight. Okay. So when the family got to the location, they noticed that tire tracks had gone beyond the safe zone marked by a fence and signs that indicate danger. A makeshift bridge had even been constructed so the car could make it past a deep rut in the soil. As the family walked up the embankment, the tracks continued. They went and went until they could no longer be seen. The father told the rest of his family to stay back as he peered over the edge of the massive cliff. He could hear the waves crashing against the rocks before he even saw them. At first, he saw nothing, just the ocean. But as he peered over further, he saw that on the ledge, a car had fallen. It was teetering off the edge with its front wheels hanging off, and it looked like it could be swept up by a large wave at any second. That's pretty crazy. That is, it's a crazy find. The man said when he saw the car that he was shocked that it hadn't fell into the ocean already because it was really strong winds that day, so it looked like the car was, like, teetering off the edge of a cliff. Yeah, and, and for the most part, I mean, most cars, all the weight's in the front due to the engine being in the front. So you would think that if it was hanging off the, the front, it would fall. Well, it looked like, upon, like, further inspection, it looked like the car had taken a nosedive off the cliff. So it was kind of, like, shaped like an accordion in front. Oh, oh okay, I see so, what you're saying. So, like, the weight was distributed differently because of the crash. Gotcha. I would assume. So the man had a pair of binoculars with him that they had brought for sightseeing. My dad would always bring binoculars too when we would go places. And I'd be like, Dad, you kind of look like a creep. Yeah, but I used to like when he used to do it and he used to always look at the birds. Yeah. That was cool. That's what he said he was looking at at the beach. Yeah. Yeah. He was probably probably just looking at people and like, oh, look at this guy. Look what he's doing. Yeah. Well, I hope so. Yeah. I like the direction you took that. So when he looked down back at the car with the binoculars, he's going to notice um, a license plate. So he knows that the car is from Victoria and he sees a registration that he writes down. So when they do go to the police station, he's able to give them a registration number and license plate number of the car. Well, that's pretty cool. And so he wouldn't have been able to do that if he didn't have the binoculars. That is very true. So. And another thing that he's going to notice is a hose that leads from the tailpipe of the car into the driver's window so it looks like this wasn't just an accident it kind of looks intentional at this point 
So curious and concerned, the man told his family that they needed to report this to the nearest police station. The family that discovered that car would always remember that day, not because of the breathtaking natural beauty that they took in, but because they had stumbled upon what would become known as one of Australia's most brutal and mysterious murders. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The family that had found the car desperately clinging onto the cliffs was most definitely the 1970s version of today's true crime buffs because they knew exactly what to do at the location once their father had identified the hose and said that foul play might have been involved because they retraced their own footsteps as not to disturb the scene any more than they already had. And then they booked it to the nearest station. I mean, that's pretty smart because most people would have contaminated the shit of the crime scene. Well, yeah, especially like back then in the 1970s, like common, like they didn't have like episodes of like CSI and Law and Order. So it is interesting. They thought of that. Yeah, they had the wherewithal to really like retrace their steps, like you said. Yeah, it's pretty smart. So they told the constable on duty once they get to the station what they had seen. The man, who was used to just helping tourists more than he was solving crimes, told the family that he would check it out immediately. He knew the sad truth, that the enchanting cliffs of Loch Ard had been the spot that some had chosen to be the place where they took their lives, leaping from the cliffs and allowing themselves to be swallowed up by the ocean. He presumed that this was the case here as well. To know the history of the location makes the choices of those individuals almost poetic. The site gained its name from a shipwreck that occurred almost 100 years before the car from our story was found. Port Campbell finds itself within what is known as Victoria's Shipwreck Coast. Loch Ard Gorge is home to the land masses known as the Twelve Apostles, 12 large, steep, and dangerous limestone stacks that would make navigating a ship into land near impossible, and in certain weather conditions, deadly. That is just what happens in 1878, when the Loch Ard, a large three-mast clipper ship, got caught up in heavy fog. Loch Ard, which means High Lake, is actually close to where my father's family is from in Scotland. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, in Loch Lomond. So I thought that was interesting. Well, just to me. Nobody else. Sorry, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's probably like, what? It's okay. I mean, hey, it's cool. It's good to know your history. Yes. So... Only two of its 54 passengers survived when the 263-foot boat crashed into the limestone cliffs, dumping the luxury items that it was carrying into the ocean. That is how the location gained its name from the ship. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And there was many other crashes that happened there, but that was the largest one. And it became very well known because um, the two people that survived, there was a play that was written about them and the survival of the shipwreck. So it became kind of famous. And in 1970, our constable was faced with another kind of crash into those cliffs. The first thing he did was use all of the information he had in front of him. He knew that he could not get down on that ledge, even if he wanted to try and attempt to do it. So he needed to call for backup. He had gone to the site with the family and saw the car for himself. They would need experienced members of the rescue team to go down there and use of special equipment to pull it back up. His second call was to motor vehicles. Using the binoculars, a registration number and license plate from the vehicle had been found. Once the sequence was read to the operator, the constable received a name. The car belonged to Elmer Crawford of Glenroy, Victoria, an electrician, husband, and father of three. But Glenroy was a suburb of Melbourne, which was about three hours drive away from the location that he was out that he was at so you would almost think that if anything he would have just that's something that would be planned from the take like a three-hour trip from where he was to just go do this yeah like it's just or like if the vehicle was even stolen like it's well most likely it was used as a suicide because of the hose that was found by the tailpipe but like it's weird to drive three hours to do something like that so it was strange to begin with right Because if the person who drove this car off the cliff intended to only do that, 
you know, like there's cliffs that are closer to Melbourne that you wouldn't need to drive three hours for. So it's totally intentional. The Port Campbell rescue team responded quickly to the request by the police station to check out the car. There was a possibility that someone might be alive, depending on when the car fell. By 4 p.m. that day, only hours after the discovery, one of their most trusted men rappelled down the side of the cliff. And this is a very difficult procedure because the wind had picked up and it was raining heavily that day. When the man got to the ledge, which was about 25 feet at its widest, he saw that about one-third of the car was hanging off of the ledge. It was teetering with the wind and rain. Debris from the contents of the car and pieces of the car itself littered the ground around it. The front of the car looked like it had been squashed like an accordion, and it was clear that the car took a straight nosedive off the cliff, landed on its nose, and then settled in the position it still lay in. The first thing that the man noticed was the hose that the constable had told him about right away. This was a very deliberate placement. Up close, you could notice that the tail had been placed around the tailpipe and was tied to the top of the car twice so it couldn't be moved. And then it was placed in the driver's side window, which was shut as much as it could be, and then rags were placed in the window cracks to stop the harmful gas from getting out of the car. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's some pretty serious stuff. I mean, this person's going to extreme lengths to make sure he commits suicide. Yeah. The weather made things really difficult for the man to see inside the car. And on top of that, there was a lot of things inside of it, so it was kind of difficult to see what was truly in there. He saw that there were no keys in the ignition, but as far as he could see, there were no people in there. As the car was, it was only safe to open the passenger side door. So when he did, a strong odor hit him in the face. There was a coat sitting in the front seat, and when he lifted it, he found a twenty-two caliber rifle. So two things, probably not good signs of good things happening. No, I mean, it sounds like we got some carbon monoxide poisoning. We oh, have, you would think that. Yeah, you have yeah. The, the gun so far. And then the fact that whoever this is drove off a cliff, pretty much. True. So. so he noticed that the roof of the car had blood on it. He took the rifle from the vehicle and a small box that he also found on the front seat. It was all that he would be able to carry up with him. He knew that more men were needed to help with the car, and he did not want to be responsible for messing with the vehicle any further and possibly, like, being the reason why it did fall into the ocean. In the box, there was a rubber hose filled with lead, extension cords, and family photos of a woman, three children, and a middle-aged man. The police station and the rescue team coordinated a watch of the car so it could be monitored until their... Uh, equipment arrived the next day that would be able to pull it up i mean i guess we're just gonna mon i mean there's really no point of doing that because like what's that person gonna do stop it well well th- I, I try to look at it this way right if the constable had a hard time getting down to where the car was no the constable didn't even go it was a member of the rescue team okay so even better so then how is anybody even going to get down there to take anything i mean it makes sense to do it regardless it's still a crime scene but that's true i guess you're right they're kind of like keeping the validity of the crime scene of course, intact of course that which, makes more sense than like watching the car which is what it. we always give other cops for like <laughs> like some flat BS, mm-hmm. you know on other on certain cases where they completely screwed it up so it's good that they did, but at the same time, no one's getting down there. Yeah, no, I have to say from the discovery until kind of the end of this case, you'll see what I mean by that. But like the police force, all of them that are involved do an incredible job here. They really do. Like with their preservations of crime scenes, the way that they, their forensics teams come in, the way they investigate. So, I mean, there's no lack of a bad police force. In yeah, this. we can't say any, no. say any of that on this case. No. So at the same time as the rescue worker was scaling back up the cliff, a constable with the Glenroy police was knocking at the door of 136 Cardinal Road, the home of the Crawford family. The house was dark and quiet. He knocked for a long time. While at the front door, he noticed there was a loaf of bread from the baker left outside, and the Venetian blinds were closed very tightly. So this is weird. Like, who would leave that bread outside? It was going to get hard. So this was signs that nobody was home. He chose to ask the neighbors if they had seen the Crawfords or knew where they went, and they all had no clue. But once the constable left, the neighbors all got together, especially those that were closest with Teresa, the wife of Elmer. 
They were curious about what was going on. Hours later, they began doing their own snooping around the Crawford home. Sounds like the neighbors we have. Oh my God, it they does. They do the same thing. <laughs> they, they were met with the same scene as the constable. The lights were out and the blinds were drawn. But, and a truer statement has never been said, especially, you know, by us, no one knows your activity more than your nosy neighbor. And they were able to catch something that the constable missed. The motor scooter that Elmer Crawford owned was at the house in the back where he always kept it, kind of out of eyesight if the constable were just to glance at the backyard of the house. So someone must be home. The neighbors called the police and the constable returned, this time with a more experienced officer to help him search the premises. At this point, the car had been found and they knew that some type of foul play was going on. They didn't know what had happened or who had passed away or who had made this suicide attempt, but they knew that something bad had happened to this family. So the officers were given permission to just enter with force if necessary, if they didn't receive an answer. So when the two arrive, they are going to knock again, but there's no response. So they don't want to break into the house because they don't want to do any damage that they don't have to do. So they go around the house and look for an open window. They finally find one, and the one officer, the more experienced second officer, is going to climb through that window kind of blind, like he goes in feet first, and he finds himself standing on a bed once he goes through the window. Once he goes in, he's going to move quickly through the room. Now, the whole house is pitch black, so he really can't see anything. And as he's leaving what I guess he presumes to be a bedroom because he was on a bed, he turns on the light switch but has already left that room. So the hallway is kind of like half illuminated and he flips on the light for the hallway and he lets his partner in. And it's then that they actually realize that they're standing in the midst of a crime scene because there is blood everywhere. I mean, that's pretty crazy too. Like, I mean, you got to give this guy credit too. Like if you're going, you're going in blind Feet first. You have no idea what's in there. Yeah, it was probably a silly move. Silly move. But, I mean, I guess they were told to get in there by any means, pretty much. So, I mean, what do you do? Yeah, and at this point, they don't think they're going to be walking into a crime scene. They think they're dealing with a case of suicide. Right. Like, that is the crime scene at the cliffs, not at the residence. So, there's no present danger that they feel like they might be faced with. Okay, so now let's get back into the show. So worried that there were still victims in the house, the men are going to walk from room to room, turning on every light, just to make sure that there were no victims present. And the men were shocked. There was so much blood, more than they had ever seen before at any crime scene. It was all over the walls of half of the rooms in the house, and it was soaked into the beds. And they noticed upon like further inspection, because the carpets in the hallway were like this dark blue, but you could tell that there were trails of blood leading from the bedroom to the kitchen and then out to the back door. I mean, that's pretty intense. Yeah, and not just like trails, but it was like a body was bleeding profusely and it was dragged. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so heavy blood trails. But then now where were the bodies? That's a good question. Yeah. Also, if you think about it, I I mean, well, first of all, you know we're in the 70s because they got blue carpet. Yeah. But besides, <laughs> besides that, that, that's actually insane that you're able to see that amount of blood on a dark blue carpet. Yeah, and a high pile one too. Like, exactly. It was soaked in pretty good. Right. Are you intrigued? A little bit. <laughs> so they call for backup and inform the dispatcher that they would need a forensics team as well. Within an hour, the crime scene technicians and additional officers were at the scene The detective in charge had a good grasp of preserving the crime scene and evidence collection. He broke his men into teams and made it clear that they all had an assigned room and they weren't allowed to go to any other location in the house to prevent cross-contamination, which is like a really forward-thinking way to go about crime scene collection at a time when DNA evidence was not even a thing, not even close to being a thing. Right. I mean, it is. I mean, you're 100% right. This kind of goes back when we did the Jeffrey McDonald case with um, like the different blood types is really going to be the only way you could discern victim from victim. Right. Yeah. So I guess that's what he was trying to prevent is the cross-contamination of blood types. 
So it was clear that the blood trails were made from the victims being dragged from their bedrooms into the kitchen. There was more than one victim because the trails led out of two separate rooms. The blue carpet of the hallway was soaked in blood. It also appeared like someone had attempted to clean up the blood as spots of the carpet were wet and cleaner had obviously been applied. The first room, the room with the most blood, was the room that the officer initially entered through. It was clear that this room was one of two young girls, most likely the two Crawford girls, Catherine and Karen. Their single-sized beds looked slept in. Blood soaked their pillows, sheets, and mattresses. A trail led from each bed and joined together at the door of the room. Blood was spattered all over the walls of the room and covered all of the girls' belongings, including a neatly pressed school uniform hanging on the doorknob of a large wardrobe. In the second room was a bloody pile of men's clothing that was discarded in the corner. Blood was not on the bed of this room, but on the carpet at the foot of the bed. Spatter covered the end of the bed and the wall opposite of the end of the bed, meaning that someone must have been standing at the foot of the bed when they had been attacked. There were discarded bloody sheets in this room, some of them clearly from the girls' bedroom because it matched the sheets on their bed. With those sheets were a woman's housecoat and children's pajamas. Both items had bloodstains as well. The only bedroom that was free from any blood spatter was the smallest one, determined later to be the room of the middle child, a boy named James. This was a very strange scene for detectives. The family seemed to have been murdered in their sleep, but there were no signs of forced entry. The detectives also found in the kitchen, where all the blood trails led, was a pile of man's pajamas, soaked in blood, and a bowl in the sink that had cereal and milk still in it. The milk did not smell spoiled, so they knew the person who had eaten the cereal hadn't left that long ago. All electrical appliances were unplugged throughout the house, except for one single nightlight in the hallway. There were also handwritten notes left in the kitchen. One of them was addressed to Miss Jean Crawford in Tammany Martin, Ireland, and it was titled Next of Kin. However, nothing else was written on the paper. On another paper, a note was addressed to the milkman that says the house will need no deliveries until further notice. However, that note had not been left outside. This led detectives to deduce that someone had recently been in the house and they were scared off by something. And pretty quickly. Maybe it was the constable coming earlier that day, or it could have been the neighbors poking around. But it was clear that they had just missed the person that was in that house. You know what's really weird? It's always when people are murdered in their sleep that they can't find any trace of any forced entry. Think about even um even something uh, like the case of Velisca Axe murder the house, right? Yeah. All the, oh, they were all dead in their beds, and they literally had no way of them entering, like no evidence of anyone entering the house. Well, I think that's because when the family's sleeping, if someone were to come in and commit these murders, that they would have time to do so, or... It's someone that's already in the house. Right, exactly. Well, that's where I'm going with it, you yes. know, because that is, it's always, it's like, almost like there's a correlation with that, always. Mm-hmm. Well, close to the written notes on the kitchen table, there was a newspaper article that was very neatly cut out. It was from September 8th, 1969, from the Melbourne Age. The article was titled, A Mother's Agony in Depression Years. It was a letter to the editor about the topic of abortion. A woman's engagement ring was found on the mantelpiece in the living room, which was free from any bloodstains. At the desk in the living room, another half-written letter was written out to someone named Vani. Later, they would learn that this is the name of Teresa's older sister, one of the seven siblings that she had. In the letter she was writing, Teresa talked about her unhappiness at being pregnant again, but that she had realized it was too late to do anything about it. But the letter stopped there and revealed no more to investigators. So now they knew that they weren't dealing with a family of five, that Teresa was pregnant. So there's one more child. On the coffee table, pushed against the living room wall, was a bottle of upholstery cleaner. And the brush on top of the bottle, you know how they have like 
the brushes on top connected to the cap. Yes. It was filled with blue fibers and blood between the bristles. Okay, so it does look like someone tried to clean up the spots of the blue carpet. Yes, yeah. I mean, hopefully they realize, like, okay, this one little bottle's not going to do it. Yeah, really. So that's <laughs> probably why they stopped. Um, but it seemed that someone had tried to cover up the loose ends, like, in a hurry. So the next place they searched and photographed was the detached garage on the right side of the house, at the end of the driveway. In the garage, they found blood stains on some garage can covers and a wide array of tools that Elmer had. He was known as a handyman, so he had like every tool you can imagine. There was also a row of car seats leaning up against one of the walls. Not like children's car seats, like actual car seats, like a row of car seats. Right. So after processing the horrific scene at the house... Investigators needed to find out what was in that car that was ready to plunge into the ocean. So it's getting more and more important that they really get this car off the ledge because they needed to know just where the Crawfords were and they needed to do more investigations to find out who they were. See, I already find what I find out already is the fact that the car is on the ledge, right? Mm -hmm. They found multiple ways already that, you know, signs of committing suicide in that car, right? Okay. But yet they still don't see any body in there. That's what's fascinating is that so far there's no bodies that are turning up. And at first, you know, it was like, oh, did Elmer commit suicide? But now that they found this letter from Teresa and her being upset about her being pregnant and then finding the article about abortion. Right now in the investigation, I would assume that they're beginning to think that maybe Teresa was the one. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. But I, I mean, I, we're going to find out. <laughs> I know. But I, but what I want to make... I hold all the answers. You do hold all the answers. But I, I have to tell you, I think right now where we're at, I feel like maybe the car is a decoy. Okay. That's my guess. All right. I like to give a little guess here and there. Okay. Well, we're with you. I don't, know, I don't know who's killed or not. I have no idea. But to me, it sounds like at the moment, because of the crime scene at the house, yeah. and because we have the car on the cliff... That it seems like that car was intentionally plunged off the side, to, you know, where it was, right. as a decoy to what's going on at the house. I see where your thought process is going because you have a crime scene in Glenroy, and then you have this car three hours away. Right, so, and, it's right, interesting. Exactly. So, luckily for investigators, the car survived the night on the cliff. The equipment they needed to bring the car up had arrived, and they were ready to begin in the early morning hours of July third. A rescue team of three men went down the ledge this time. Their mission was to first get the car into a safe position, and second was to rig it up so that the machine could lift it back up to solid ground. The three men attached a chain to the rear axle of the car so that it could be pulled further away from the edge and it would be on sturdy ground. Once the vehicle was moved back, pictures were taken of the change in position. On that day, the smell that came from the car was radiating from it. Unlike the day before where the smell didn't come out until the car doors were opened. So it wasn't a smell of carbon monoxide. Well, carbon monoxide doesn't have a smell. Right. But it wasn't like a smell of gas that the guy had smelled the original day. It was more of a smell of rot. So the men were instructed to open all of the car doors so they can get a better understanding of just what had happened. And that was when they saw it. A foot poking out from beneath a tarp that was lying across the entire back of the car. Oh. So here are the bodies. Okay. He was wrong. <laughs> just say that. I like when you say it. <sighs> Fine. I was wrong. There was oh, bodies just, in it. It's like ma- magic words oh, to my ears. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the men took more photos of the car as it was then. The police couldn't be down there to investigate the car, so they wanted as many pictures as they could get at all stages of the discovery. The men then lifted the tarp and revealed the body of a woman and three children, all wearing what looked like pajamas. Their bodies seemed to be accompanied by bloody sheets, but it was so hard to make things out because the car was full of so much clutter. The four bodies were removed one by one from the car. They were photographed and then wrapped again in the sheets that were left in the car. It was clear that the bodies in the car belonged to Teresa Crawford, her 12-year-old daughter, Catherine Crawford, her 8-year-old son, James, and her youngest daughter, Karen, who was 6 years old. 
The men above asked through walkie-talkies about the discovery of a man's body, but the men below said no. There was only four bodies in the car. So the members of the family were put on stretchers, one by one, and slowly lifted from the ledge. From there, the car was further searched. The men discovered that the rope was attached to a steering wheel and was brought back to the trunk, which was shut down to hold it in place. So this was clearly a makeshift way to make the car stay straight. And once everything was placed back inside the car and the doors were shut again, the men hooked up the car so that it could be pulled up. Now, even though the car was being slowly lifted up the cliff, because it was so windy that day and the weight of the vehicle, especially with everything in it, it was swinging wildly the whole way up until it reached the top. So like, they were so scared that it would fall again, but it didn't. That is probably the scariest thing ever. I mean, I know myself working with cranes, when you got something that heavy and it's coming up like that, oh my God, there's no other feeling. Like you're like shaking until this thing gets to the point where you could just swing it over and you're okay. It's crazy. And the wind really makes a, it's a big factor in, in everything you pick up. So I could, I, I would have been shaken. Imagine how those guys yeah. were feeling oh my God, when they were yeah. pulling it up. So the car was brought to the police station for an intensive forensic investigation. It was determined that the blood that was found on the driver's seat, the roof lining, and the dashboard were all type O blood. But the blood all over the back of the car and in the house, that was all type A blood. Now, the investigators knew that Elmer Crawford had type O blood based on the Red Cross blood donation card that they found back at the house. This is going to completely turn the case upside down because all other members of the Crawford family had type A blood. Wait a minute. Okay, so he was the only one in the family that had O. Yes. And that's what they found on the carpet and no, everywhere around No, 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 that's what, what they found on the car, in the driver's seat of the car and on the roof above it and the dashboard. Okay. They found type A blood in the house and in the back of the car. How much blood are we talking about in the in the car? Like enough that it would be pouring out of the wounds on them. A lot. Okay, so then I, I mean, I could only think, okay, could he have self-inflicted an injury on himself? I don't know. Like I said, to make it look like he was in that car there too. Yes. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's possible. It appeared that Elmer was no longer missing, possibly lost to the shores of the shipwreck coast, but he was now the prime suspect in the murder of his family. Okay. I mean, I mean, this is getting crazy. I mean, I, I like these little twists here and there because you have You're two welcome. different crime scenes. Thank you. Thank you. You have two <laughs> different crime scenes and I'm trying to like wrap my head around both of them because... They're so sloppy. It Both of them are sloppy, but yet both of them show Our signs plans. of them cleaning it up. Right. So they're they're sloppy and they're planned. This is very interesting crime it's, scene. It's bizarre because you either go one way or, or, or the other. You don't mm-hmm. meet in the middle and do both. Well, the blood from inside the car that was the type O blood, that was assumed to be from building that makeshift rock bridge. So remember, there was a rut in the road that a car would have never been able to cross. But someone had built like this weird bridge like out of like rocks and limestone. So they were assuming that while the bridge was made, he might have cut himself. And that's why the blood was only in the car and not at all at the crime scene. I mean, it's possible. I mean, I'm really putting it on the fo- on the husband right now because yeah, he's also a handyman. So he has a lot of access to tools. True. And he could rig the little bridge. He could have rigged the thing for the steering wheel so the car would stay straight when it went over. Interesting. So these are all kind of like kind of piecing together. It's looking like it's him. So yeah. And remember the car seat in the garage? Well, he must have had to remove that in order to put the bodies in the back. Correct. I already thought that already. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, Scooby-Doo. Yep. <laughs> so when the car seat was looked at again by investigators, it was determined to have belonged to the car that had fallen off the cliff. So it would appear that the seat was removed to fit the bodies of his family members. And through further analysis, investigators found out that the car's engine was not on when it went over the cliff. They were able to figure this out from the coolant system. The fans of the system were not damaged because they weren't spinning when the car was crashed. So nobody drove that car off the cliff. It was pushed. Now, now, now with that, right, you have to think. The car's in neutral. 
most likely to get it rolling. Yes. Okay. When it landed, it was in first gear, but the people who looked at it, they thought that it might have been pushed into first gear because of the fall. But they assumed that it was in neutral when it was right. Pushed. But if it could, but if it was in first gear, that means the fans would have been spinning because it would have had to be on. Okay, so it wasn't neutral. I mean, unless it's unless it's a manual car, manual transmission, and you just put it into first gear. But even then, I, I don't, I don't know. But if you put the car in neutral, it's gonna roll. Yeah. So I would assume that whoever did this pushed it while it was in neutral, and that's right. why it landed where it landed and not could completely into the water. True. Because if it had speed, it would have took off. It would have it would have cleared the ledge. That's what I'm saying. 100%. So it had to have been rolling extremely slow to make it where it was. Yes. Okay. Wow. So later, to make sure that their theory was correct, the police would purchase the same car, fill it with crash dummies the same size as the victims, Teresa and her children, as well as the things that were littered in the car. Because don't forget, there was a lot of items also in the car with them in the back seat. Then they placed a fifth dummy in the driver's seat and recreated the fall exactly. The car landed in a very similar position. Now this is with it being in neutral, like you said. And the fifth dummy was not thrown from the vehicle because they wanted to make sure that like they weren't forgetting the fact that maybe he could have been thrown from the car and fallen into the ocean just himself, but the crash was still there. Like what if Elmer got thrown from the car? But the dummy didn't get thrown from the car, so they were very comfortable in saying, we don't think he was in the car. Because the door wasn't open, and they don't think the way like the projection of the car went that he would have fallen through the windshield. Not to mention, your front windshield, this is a fun fact for everybody, most people already know this, but front windshield is actually designed to withstand impact. But what about the ones in the, the 70s? The sides, no, still. Okay. Still. I mean, not the way it is now, but I mean, still back it then always it was right. So that's even when, like, they tell you if a car goes over a bridge and falls in water, you never try to get out through the front window because you're not getting out. You have to knock the sides out to get out. Okay. So it's the same thing here. If he if it impacted, he wouldn't have been able to escape the front window. I mean, it would have been designed to make an impact. Well, no, they're saying like thrown from it because it was like all broken. Right, and I'm no, no, you're right, and I'm just saying like he would have had to come out the side, and if that was the case, the door could have been open or damaged. Right. If he got flung out, and it wasn't. Right. Okay, so who were the Crawford family? That's what investigators wanted to know next. While the police combed through all of their evidence in the crashed car, the blood-soaked house, and the coroner's office performed their gut-wrenching autopsies on the family, the constable began talking to neighbors and family members to get a picture of who the family was and what had happened. Teresa McManus, known as Terry to all of her friends, was born in Ipswich, Queensland. She grew up in a Catholic family with seven siblings and a father who worked for the railway. Her mother stayed at home with her and all of her siblings. Teresa, like many of her siblings, moved away when she got older. She chose to go to Melbourne, but stayed in touch with her family via mail, as the long-distance phone calls were very expensive. She stayed especially close to her older sister, Vani, who was the closest to her age. It was to her that the half-written letter in the living room was written to. When she got to Melbourne, she worked at a convalescent home where she was known for her bright and bubbly personality. When she wasn't working, she would go out with her friends dancing, especially to the Irish dances, which were plenty because Melbourne has a large Irish population, especially back in the 1970s. So it was one of those dances that she met her future husband, Elmer Crawford, a man who was six years her senior. Elmer had been born in Quebec, Canada, to an Irish immigrant who returned with him to Ireland shortly after his birth. His mother, though, went back to Canada, leaving him to be raised by his grandparents. Elmer was described as a quiet child who seemed to like being alone. He never finished school, and at age 22, he settled in Melbourne as well. He worked there as a handyman and eventually worked his way up to becoming an electrician. And by the time he met Teresa, Elmer was making a really good living for himself. But at work, a lot of people didn't know him. They said he was diligent and a good worker, but he was really shy and he shared very little. Like, some of his co-workers that had worked with him for years knew nothing about him. Sometimes that's a good thing. 
That's true. Some people just collect a paycheck and go home. I mean, that's it. Not me. I have to talk to everybody. You too. Sort of. Yeah. Depends. What? Are you kidding me? You talk to, you could talk to a tree for like two hours. That's true. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the two began dating right away and Teresa soon became pregnant. Something that was not allowed for a girl who comes from a strict Catholic household. They got married almost immediately. While Teresa was pregnant, Elmer worked to build a house on a vacant lot that he had purchased in the town of Glenroy on Cardinal Road. The couple lived in the garage that was on the property until the home was completed, and this was only a few weeks before their daughter Catherine was born in early 1958. Could you imagine being like nine months pregnant living in a garage? Oh my God. (laughs) No, I cannot. I'd be miserable. No, you can't even imagine being pregnant. No, I can't. The Crawfords were well-liked in the community. Teresa always fit in more than Elmer, but everyone just chalked it up to her being more social than he was. Despite his antisocial tendencies, everyone remarked that Elmer was always there to help his neighbors. He was a great handyman, and he had every tool imaginable. So if anyone ever needed something fixed, he was the guy that they called. He always hooked up illegal second phone lines for a lot of people. So, like, who doesn't like that guy? Who always did, like, the illegal thing. Of course. And like, if it benefits them, why not? Exactly. I think, like, back then, it was the phone lines. And then, like, when we were kids, it was, like, the guy who always hooked up the illegal cable. Like, you got oh, all the yeah. channels. Yeah, like, my dad's friend always was able to give us everything on on a, on a box, like, the, um, the actual cable box. Right. HBO. It used to be a card. Oh, okay. I don't know if it was that for you. It no, we, ne- we never got the illegal. Like, oh, okay. no. It used to be, like, a We little... didn't know that guy. No. No. Well, it used to be like a little, like almost like a debit card. Okay. And you just slid it in, but I guess it was like a hacked card. Okay. So you got everything. It's interesting. Oh, yeah. I do remember the cards in the IO boxes. Okay. Yeah. So he also helped out the children of the community. So if a child ever needed their bike fixed, they knew they could just walk right up to Mr. Crawford's garage, and that's where he could usually be found, and just ask him to patch up their tire or, like, fix a broken chain. This guy needs to start, like, charging a whole neighborhood. I know, but that's nice that he does that for the kids. Of course. Or for the kids, yeah. So in 1962, Elmer and Teresa welcomed their second child into the world, James. And two years later, Karen was born. But after the birth of Karen, Teresa suffered what they called then a nervous breakdown, but what we recognize now as postpartum depression. She cried all the time and spent most of her days sleeping, waking only to feed the children and clean. The doctor prescribed her a nerve tablet, which is basically a benzodiazepine known like it's like Valium or Xanax. Yeah, it's, it's Valium. Yeah. But back then they called it like mother's little helpers. Oh, God. Thanks Did I to say a... volume. I'm sorry. I meant volume. <laughs> yeah, just volume, you know? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I just let it go. <laughs> but they called it Mother's Little Helpers thanks to that Rolling Stones song. That's cool. About the film. You know what's really sad, though? What? The fact that uh, a woman, or, you know, I'm sure with other things too, but like a woman has, uh, you know, has a baby and then postpartum depression kicks in right but they, they think back then they think like the lady's going AWOL I know like, it's, it's really so sad <laughs> yeah they had crazy. no comprehension about that stuff I mean luckily now we live in a world where they do have a better understanding and people are a little bit more accepting and helpful well, we've in come those a long situations way, for real <laughs> yes we have but those little pills did not help Teresa whatsoever so Elmer is going to end up flying out Teresa's parents And, like, Ipswich is thousands of miles away. So he flies them in, and they help care for the children so his wife could get better and rest. So they stayed for about three months as Teresa slowly began to, like, become her old self again. But after they said goodbye to her parents, Elmer made it clear that that was never going to happen again. He told Teresa that he didn't want any more children and demanded that she begin taking birth control. And this created a bit of a moral dilemma for Teresa because she was Catholic and did not believe in birth control. I mean, mind you, this is 1964. Right. So detectives learned early on that this event, like forcing birth control on her, was not out of character for Elmer. He was an interesting man to learn about. Although he outwardly seemed to do the right thing by helping his neighbors and appearing to be a loving and devoted father and husband, there seemed to be something just a bit off about him. 
He didn't really like going to social events, and when he did, he didn't really talk to anyone or ever have anything to drink with them or relax or open up at all. Teresa's closest friends on the block told investigators that Elmer had an explosive temper, so Teresa worked hard to never upset him and make sure the kids did the same. There was also a rumor in the community about Elmer's wealth. It was odd how much money the Crawfords had in their blue-collar community. He seemed to have just a little bit more than he should. Yes, he was an electrician making a good salary, but the Crawfords had three kids and a house to maintain. So how could they afford all of Elmer's new tools, including his power tools, the vacant lots that he owned in Queensland, and a caravan that he had parked in front of the house? all of the family vacations they went on, and the motor scooter Elmer loved so much. All right, well, I mean, that's true. But leave his motor scooter alone. I'm sure it wasn't that much money. Uh, You just are a man who loves toys. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) trying to stick up for, you know, the toys. So nothing really seemed to make sense when it came to this family. But the rumor was that Elmer had been stealing things from job sites and reselling them for a higher price. This neighborhood theory was basically confirmed by all the valuable materials found in the garage off the main house. Elmer also worked as a parking attendant part-time at the horse races, and it's rumored that he was skimming money off the cash jars for years, in addition to taking tips. So despite having a lot of money, however he got it, Elmer did not allow Teresa to have any access to it. Recently, the couple had a lot of troubles in their marriage. Teresa had stopped taking the birth control that she did not approve of, and in April of 1970, she had gotten pregnant. Teresa had stopped taking the birth control that she did not approve of, and in April of 1970, she had gotten pregnant. At first, she was excited, but when she told Elmer, he was furious. He demanded that she go get an abortion. And this is when Teresa began cutting out articles from newspapers that stated getting an abortion could have long-lasting psychological effects on the mother. Now, I think here she was just desperately trying to tell him that getting an abortion was not something that she wanted to do. But when he would not relent, she told him that if he made her go get an abortion, that she would expose him for the crimes that he'd been committing for years. Okay, so here we are. We have motive now. Yes. So this is all coming together even more now. Because right. now we know exactly what's going on. This dude seems like a very clean, like, when I, don't, when I say clean cut, like, he's the man of the house type of guy. like Old school and, mentality. Right, is that old school mentality. And if something, if he, he tells you something, way. yeah, if he tells you something, you don't do it, there's hell to pay. Yes. So I agree with see, that. Because this is already the second time. First it was the birth control. Now it's the abortion. And now we have, like, blackmail going on between the, between right, the right. wife and the husband, so. I also don't yeah. think he wants another child for two reasons, because it would really cut into his money supply and whatever he's wanting to do with that, but also because he doesn't want Teresa to fall into that depression again, because he, he seems to like his space and, like, doing what he wants well, to do. Having, having your um, yeah. mother well, and father-in-law in your house for three months, I mean, that's... Especially a small house like that. That's kind of crazy. There was also no more room in the house. Right. Yeah. So because of all the turmoil surrounding this child, Teresa was not that happy about her pregnancy any longer. And that we can clearly see from the letter that she was writing to her sister and the things that she was telling her friends. On the other hand, Elmer was growing more and more furious. He did not want another child. He did not want his crimes exposed. And if Teresa does get the guts to leave him, she would be taking half of the money that he'd worked so hard to get. But he was adamant. He did not want another child. He felt as if he needed to act. So based on all the evidence that was found at the house and Lockard Gorge, as well as the autopsy reports, which were made easier to figure out because the murder weapons were left in the car with the victims, Investigators had pieced together that the crime happened as follows. This was a very carefully planned crime. Elmer wanted to murder his family, but make it look like Teresa had murdered the children and then killed herself because she was so upset about being a mother again and possibly having to deal with another nervous breakdown, as they called it in 1970. 
After all of this, Elmer was going to play the role of a grieving father just long enough to please everyone, and then he was going to move away. But if this was going to work, he had to have everything planned out. Elmer took a vacation from his job in late June. While on vacation, he began a major cleanup, as he called it, most likely getting rid of any paperwork or pieces of incriminating evidence. The neighbors reported seeing huge plumes of smoke coming from the backyard because of all the garbage that he had been burning. Now, usually Elmer was courteous when it came to his home projects. He would only use a hammer and power tools during the day and not for long lengths of time and never when the Citadel, which was right next door, was holding a service. But during this vacation, he didn't seem to care. He was doing work around the clock, day and night, and on weeknights, and when the services were going on. So he told people that what he was doing was uh, raising the roof of the garage so that he could fit the caravan inside, but the neighbors were starting to really get annoyed. While he was out in his garage, Elmer was making a makeshift baton by filling a rubber hose with lead and removing the back seat from the family car. Teresa began to disclose to the women in the neighborhood that she was worried about her husband. He should be preparing to return to work. His vacation time was almost up, but it didn't look like he was ready to go back to work at all. And on July 1st, 1970, Elmer Crawford began unplugging all of the appliances in the house while his wife cleaned up after their dinner that night, except for one single nightlight in the hallway. He goes out to the fuse box and makes sure that it's wired correctly for what he plans to do to his family. Then he goes out to the garage. He can hear singing coming from the Citadel next door. It was their choir practice that they had once a week. He grabbed what he needed and headed back into the house past the freezing midwinter air. Teresa had just finished putting all the children to bed. It was easy to do so that night because they were all so exhausted. Karen had had a bad toothache for a few days, making it hard for her to go to sleep. So, like any other six-year-old, she would keep her mother and sister up with her. She sat down at the desk in the living room that faced the fireplace and began writing a letter to her sister, Vani. She had a lot on her mind. She heard the back door of the house open. She just assumed that it was her husband coming in from the garage to go to the bathroom or grab a drink, as he often did, so she didn't turn around. However, after some time, she felt his presence behind her, so she put down her pen and turned around. She stood to face him, and this is when he struck her in the head, with the makeshift baton that he had made from the rubber hose and lead. She fell unconscious to the floor. He dragged her out of the living room and into the dark master bedroom. As she was dragged, her slippers fell off in the hallway. He lifted her onto the double bed. He checked to see if she was breathing. She was. This was all part of his plan. He reached into his pocket and pulled out an interesting device. It was a pair of alligator clips attached to an outlet plug. He connected one clip to her earlobe and the other to her hand, between her pointer finger and thumb. He then stepped back and turned on the light switch, sending 240 volts of electricity through the body of his three-month pregnant wife, killing her and her unborn child instantly. The light was turned off again, but Elmer could still see the burn marks on her body and the welt created by the electricity that had run through her. This would have blown a fuse, but didn't because of the work that Elmer had been doing all week. Elmer had plugged all all the devices in the walls and he had reworked the fuse box and replaced two fuses, so it was able to withstand that amount of electricity. He then unplugged his alligator clips from the wall put them back in his pocket, and made his way towards his daughter's bedroom. When he opened the door, the only light that he left plugged in, the nightlight, revealed the faces of his daughters as they slept peacefully in their beds. He first walked towards his eldest daughter, Catherine, who was sleeping on her left side. He pulled out a craftsman hammer that he had with him and raised it as high as he could above his head, 
and brought it down with as much force as he could muster on the right side of his daughter's forehead. Blood gushed from her open wound and sprayed both him and the walls behind him. He raised the hammer up again and hit her again, this time in the center of her forehead. This time he had hit her so hard that he had to pry the hammer from the skull of his firstborn child. Something must have made him believe that she was not dead, because he attached the alligator clips on her hands and earlobes the same as he had done to her mother, and he turned on the light switch. Her body didn't move, because she was dead when the electricity ran through her body. He then turned off the light again and walked to the other side of the room, where his youngest daughter slept. Karen was still sleeping, most likely because she was exhausted from the two nights of not sleeping. Again, he brought up the hammer and hit her on the right side of her forehead, shattering her skull and killing her instantly. He chose not to electrocute her, most likely because she had been hit so hard that her brain tissue was exposed. In the third and smallest bedroom, Elmer's only son awoke. He heard a lot of noise and was scared. The house seemed so much darker to him than it usually was. The eight-year-old boy in his pajamas walked sleepily past his sister's room. The eight-year-old boy in his pajamas walked sleepily past his sister's room and straight for his mother's room so she could make him feel better. As he was passing, his father saw him. He stopped what he was doing and made his way swiftly but quietly behind his son. James made it to the foot of his mother's bed. She was lying on it strangely. But before he could even realize what was wrong, he was hit from behind with a hammer. The boy crumbled to the ground. Blood spatter was left on the walls behind him and the bed in front of him. He then met the same fate as his mother when Elmer chose to attach the clips to his hands and ear and turn on the light switch. The kids didn't do anything wrong. So it's like, I don't understand why you would attack your own children and kill them brutally. Right, I know what you're saying. Like, if your issue is with your family, then just leave. You know what right. I mean? I mean, there's so many like, other things you can do. There's an easy ability for him to just kind of get himself out of this situation and disappear, but he's choosing to take his family's lives. Or just accept the fact that you're going to have one final kid. Yeah. And that's it. This is totally a heartbreaking case because it really did seem like from an outside perspective that this family was a pretty solid family unit. And from all accounts, the children were totally fine, like socially, emotionally, like their social emotional health was there. They were doing well in school. They were well cared for in the autopsies. It said that the children were all like a perfect height and weight for their age. And it seemed like they were having a pretty nice life. The families went on vacations every summer. So for this to happen, this man snapped. Like this isn't like something that was a gradual thing that he was slowly maddening. It was like he snapped one night and just he killed his whole entire family. Well, I wouldn't say he snapped in one day. I think Over the, the preparation, three yeah, I think the preparation of you're right doing you're right. that to his home and making sure that the um, the ground wouldn't trip the breaker, like these are all things that he did, like for so, a while. So, so like maybe say like he went kind of slowly crazy over the three months that she was pregnant, right? Yeah. So after a smoke break, he wrapped the bodies in the sheets from the beds and dragged them from their respective rooms to the kitchen where they were then carried to the car, which had the back seat already removed. He covered the bodies with a tarp and put large canisters filled with gasoline on top of them. He then put other flammable materials in the back seat with his family and placed his motor scooter in the trunk. Elmer most likely chose Lock Ard Gorge because it was a place that he liked to visit often. He liked camping and hiking there and enjoyed the remoteness of it all. Even though it was three hours away, he chose that to be where he was going to dispose of his evidence. He had brought along with him an extra 15 gallons of gas so he wouldn't have to stop. And some snacks. Chocolate, fruit, cookies, and a soda for the drive. He also had his twenty-two caliber rifle with him in case that he ran into trouble. 
He put that on the front seat and then placed his jacket on top of it, just as the guy had found. Elmer got to Port Campbell National Park with no troubles. He drove straight to the blowhole entrance. He got out of the car and was soaked immediately from the rain and the spraying of the water. He realized that there was a deep gutter that most likely was made so cars wouldn't drive off the edge of the cliff. So, in addition to this problem, the ground was really soft because the area had received a lot of rain lately, so the car was sinking as it was in the mud. It seemed that Elmer had not planned out the disposal very well, but he found a large pile of dirt and began pushing that into the rut so he would be able to drive over, but he quickly realized that that would support only one of his tires, and he needed to find something for the other side. So this is when he found large rocks and pieces of limestone. Pulling these rocks from the ground must have caused an injury that made him bleed and could explain the type of blood that was in the car. Okay, that makes sense. It was also pouring rain that night, so that would explain why there was no blood found on the rocks. Once he had enough rocks in the gutter to sustain the car's weight, he took the motor scooter out of the car and tried to drive over his makeshift bridge that he made. Um, It took him two tries because it was really hard for the heavy car to get over that. He then drove the car up a slight incline until it was about 40 feet from the cliff's edge. Elmer believed that the car would ignite because of all the gasoline and flammable materials inside when when it dropped from the cliff. He then attached the rubber hose from the tailpipe to the driver's side door, and tied the rope to the steering wheel and closed it tight on the trunk of the car. He took the keys from the ignition and then slowly pushed the car forward until it gained momentum and took a dive straight down. Elmer thought there would have been an explosion or bigger noise, but he didn't want a chance walking to the end because that would have been too dangerous in the current weather. But if he had done so, he would have seen the car only went to the ledge. He got on his motor scooter and began the three-hour journey back to Glenroy. He had to report the family missing before anyone else noticed that they were gone. However, his plan was stopped by a little girl on her way to school. Catherine's best friend, Brenda, who she walked to school with every day for the past three years, was going about her normal routine on July 2, 1970. She walked to the front door of the Crawford house and knocked. But it was not Mrs. Crawford or James or Catherine that opened the door that morning. It was Mr. Crawford. He was never there. And he looked angry. She had always thought that he was kind of creepy. So she felt unnerved seeing him at the front door. She asked if Catherine was ready for school. And he told her no. That she had the flu and she wouldn't be going to school. Feeling bad for her friend, she asked if she could see her. No, he said. She needs to rest. She agreed and thanked him, but paused before she was about to leave. She asked Mr. Crawford to tell Catherine that she hoped she gets better soon because she was going to miss her. He said he would. So Elmer must have been furious at this. His plan was to report them missing, play the grieving husband and father, but now he had been spotted after the crime was committed, and he lied about where Catherine was. So he had to switch plans. It seemed as if he tried to clean up after the murder with the upholstery cleaner, but it didn't work. So then he began writing those letters. It seemed that he was getting things together so he could make a break for it. But he was forced to leave early because sometime in between when the neighbor saw his motorcycle and the second visit from the constable, like when they broke through the window, Elmer had made a run for it on his scooter. He left Glenroy. Oh, wow. Okay. So he was the guy who, so he was home, but he left before the police could get there. As the police at every level in Australia continued to search for him, the courts are going to choose to hold a coronal inquisition. And the decision to go this route was mainly because Elmer could not be found and they wanted to declare him guilty before they even caught him. So the coronal inquisition is held on July 5th, 1971, almost a year to the date of the murders. So this is not a trial. 
It's when a coroner is the person who considers the evidence and makes a judgment about the evidence presented to the court. It is to determine the manner of death and the person responsible, which in turn does rule on the guilt of a person. So I know that seems wild, but it's true. In 1970, the coroner could find someone guilty, but sentencing was of course left up to a judge. Now, this has since been changed to just finding someone responsible with innocence or guilt being decided by a jury or judge, depending on the crime. Neighbors, family members, witnesses, and police were questioned by the coroner. The evidence was quite damning. Therefore, he found that the family was murdered by Elmer Crawford. But Elmer Crawford would never be brought to justice. He was never found. That is super wild that the guy's never been caught. Never. But in What? Oh, man. All right. That's a good twist at the end. I, that's awesome. In the, 19, uh, in the 1990s, the case was featured on America's Most Wanted. And over the years, there's been sightings of Elmer in Western Australia. But they never were him. In July of 2010, an Australian newspaper reported that Elmer Crawford had been identified as a John Doe that had been found in a morgue in San Angelo, Texas. The FBI said that they believed it was him, but when the man's DNA was tested against known relatives of Crawford, it was not a match. It wasn't him. So they can't find this guy? Never been able to find him? No. If... He is still alive, Elmer Crawford, the man who got away with murdering his three children, wife, and unborn child, would be 91 years old today. That's pretty insane. He got away with murder. I think, th- is this with the murdering f- his whole family? Is this the first one where I think this is our first case where we there is no justice for this family? This is the first one where the guy yeah. got away. Wow, that is insane. It's so sad. And it's also sad, yes. This whole family, they had to lose their lives because of the instability of their father or husband. And uh, it's so sad. It is. It is. And, you know, I mean. And it's incredible that he got away with it for so long. So there's a lot of things that, like, people think could have happened. Like, he did have relatives in Northern Ireland. So they think maybe he could have went there. He could have went to Canada. Some people believe he went to the United States. Some people believe he went to Western Australia. Like, everyone has, like, a theory about where he went. But, I mean, I really do not believe that we will find him. No, I don't think so either. But, I mean, I know that we always try to say, oh, you know, at least there was justice for the family or the victims. But in this case, I think the the best that anyone could ever hope for is just the fact that if he did get away, well, he did get away, but if he did live out the rest of his life, I really hope that the, every day he wakes up and is reminded of what he's done because, you know, that's I really feel, all we can I feel do. Like the way he, I feel like the way that he planned that murder and he was so callous about it all and was able to just do that, I don't know if he felt remorse. I don't know if he's capable of it. Yeah, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know either. But we would hope that he would feel that but way. But we hope that because... You can't so get sad. away with killing your entire family and not be haunted not by it. Not be haunted by it. All right. No, I completely agree. And I hope he oh. is cuz that's it was terrible what he did. It is really sad. I feel I feel terrible. Same. Well, guys, that is our episode on the Crawford family. We'd love to know what you think about it. So, you can always talk to us on social media and we would love to have a conversation about it. And um, just for our Patreon listeners, we are going to have um, at, we are going to have our February episodes up next weekend, and we look forward to bringing those to you. Again, if you want to join our Patreon page and get an extra two episodes a month, you can do that at patreon.com slash true crime couple. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Bye. guys.